Welcome to the Dhamma Podcast. The audio recording that follows is titled Loka, the Buddha's Formulation of the Universe. This talk was given by Rick Crutcher at the Insights from an Ancient Tradition Conference held in September of 2000 in Shelburne, Massachusetts at the Vipassana Meditation Center. The Dhamma Podcast is updated monthly with additional archives from Essien Goenka's talks and question and answer sessions, as well as other speakers discussing aspects of Vipassana meditation. This podcast is sponsored by Pariyati, a nonprofit publisher that offers written audio and video content and whose mission is to enrich the world by disseminating the words of the Buddha, providing sustenance for the seeker's journey, and illuminating the meditator's path. For more information regarding Pariyati, please go to www.pariyati.org. That is www.pariyati.org. For more information on Vipassana meditation as taught by Essing Goenka, including a schedule of courses offered throughout the world, please see www.dhamma.org. That is www.dhamma.org. It's encouraging to see so many people out so early this morning on a holiday, national holiday, to talk about the Teachings of the Buddha is found in the Pali Tipitaka. I don't know where else in the world we'd find such a thing. <laughs> but seriously, several months ago, when I was initially invited to address this gathering, I hesitated when I heard that the theme of the conference was Vipassana and science, the teaching of the Buddha. I hesitated because I'm not a scientist or a doctor, um, like our other speakers, and as I suppose many of you must be. I don't have any formal scientific training. My university studies focused on religion. So I doubted that I would have much to add to the discussion here today. But as I reflected on the role of science in our world today, I changed my mind and decided that I might enjoy an opportunity to explore some of the correspondences and some of the differences between the Dhamma, which after all means the law of nature, and that accepted body of observed reality, which is slowly being revealed by the scientific method. Science has been a fact of life uh, human enterprise for perhaps 400 years if we look back to the Copernican Galilean revolution of the Renaissance in Europe. <clears throat> I see that event as the point at which objective observation and rational thought began to challenge and eventually overtake the mythico-religious description of the world that had prevailed up until then. Perhaps we should push our timeline further back to the earliest foundations of scientific thought that's found in the logical speculations of Thales and Democritus, in the mathematical experimentation of Pythagoras, and the Socratic method of inquiry of the 6th and 5th centuries B.C., even though these early Greek thinkers were not practicing what we would recognize today as a fully evolved scientific method of inquiry, they are generally accepted as the forerunners of what became the scientific method. It's also instructive in light of our discussion today to recognize that these early Greek thinkers were contemporaries of the Buddha. They were living in the, Aegean, in the shores of the Aegean Sea, and the Buddha was living a bit further east in the Ganges Basin of India. So we can say that science has been evolving as a factor in human culture for perhaps 2,500 years and has been uh, in increasingly ascendant as a force in our lives for the past four to five centuries. But religion has existed and regulated the life of mankind seemingly since the dawn of the species at a minimum for tens of thousands of years, as archaeology continues to reveal. The roles of religion, philosophy, and science are not entirely distinct, though they've been defined as distinct disciplines, and they 
reside in different buildings on our campuses. One of the primary purposes of religion in human culture is that it provides us with a creation myth. It explains the observable phenomena of the world in which we find ourselves by explaining how the world came to be, how and why it is maintained as it is, and by predicting what its ultimate end will be. In the course of this mythico-religious description of the world, humankind's place is defined and a moral framework is constructed that gives a rationale for moderating our baser behaviors in light of our relationship to the whole of creation. Now, it's obvious to me that in the last few centuries, the scientific method has proved so undeniably successful at describing the phenomena of the world around us that it is, in fact, the provider of our current creation myth. Moreover, the scientific view of the world has effectively overwhelmed, or maybe undermined is a better word, all other creation myths on the planet. This is not to say that the various religious worldviews of earlier times have easily and willingly faded away. Far from it. Discoveries of natural laws in astronomy and physics have progressively removed the planet Earth from the center of the solar system, relocated the solar system at the remote edge of an ordinary galaxy among millions of other solar systems, and then discovered millions of such galaxies, all receding from each other in an expanding universe of previously unimaginable size and age. As a result, fundamentalist movements have sprung up in most religions to try to defend the traditional teachings of scripture. We are all familiar with the sad history of excommunications, uh, inquisitions, fatwas that have resulted from the clash between traditional religious beliefs and the findings of various disciplines of science. The theory of evolution has replaced a more personal theocentric myth of human creation. Microbiology has unraveled the secrets of DNA and found the means of manipulating the very foundations of life. And the medical sciences continue to probe the neurological and chemical basis of mental activity. As these and other scientific explanations have gained credibility, the old expositions of morality, which were hung on the framework of the traditional creation myths have shown increasing signs of stress. If the old myths no longer provide an adequate rationale for ethical behavior, then what does? Does, does the scientific worldview provide us with an alternative? This is a question I want to return to before we part today. Amid all of this ongoing tension between the scientific worldview and the traditional religious systems, it's interesting to note that there has not been a development of fundamentalist Buddhism in any part of the world, nor has there been among Buddhists a history of suppression of modern scientific thought in order to protect the validity of, of scriptural doctrine. On the contrary, among the followers of the Buddha, there has been a general embrace of the findings of all branches of science. And conversely, there has been an acknowledgement, if not an active embrace, among some well-known scientists of the Buddhist teaching. Let's explore why this is so. There are some intriguing parallels between the Buddha's view of the world and the scientific worldview, but they are not completely analogous. First and foremost, we must recognize that the purpose of a scientist and the purpose of a Buddha are entirely different. Science as a human enterprise sets about to examine the physical universe <clears throat> in an attempt to discover the laws by which it operates. It's an ever-evolving body of theory, each succeeding model lasting only until it is disproved. The great historian of science, Thomas Kuhn, who gave us the term paradigm to describe the generally accepted model <clears throat> in any scientific discipline at any given time, also pointed out that the concept of scientific progress 
is inherent in any activity that we normally consider to be science. A scientist can never claim to have discovered the truth, only that the paradigm on which he or she has based her assumptions seems to answer the, seems to explain the observed facts as far as is known at present. Every scientist knows that each unsolved puzzle remaining in his or her field has the potential to overturn the model, leading to a new, more refined model and a whole new set of puzzles. Nonetheless, despite this inherent uncertainty at the core of science, the ongoing quest of science as a whole, if not of the individual scientist, is to uncover the truth of the universe. The holy grail of science remains the unified field theory that will explain all forces and all matter in a single elegant formula. A Buddha, on the other hand, sets out with a different purpose. He arrives at a stage of knowledge of the universe that is vast, leaving nothing left to explore, but has as its goal the reform of the forces of the universe, rather than simply the comprehensive knowledge of them. The Buddha's extensive teaching has been preserved in the Pali literature, also known as the Tipitaka. In one of his discourses from the Tipitaka, the Buddha succinctly describes the extent of his knowledge. Bhikkhus, he says, the world has been discovered by the Tathagata. The Tathagata is dissociated from the world. The origin of the world has been discovered by the Tathagata. The Tathagata has abandoned the origin of the world. The cessation of the world has been discovered by the Tathagata. The Tathagata has revealed the cessation of the world. The way leading to the cessation of the world has been discovered by the Tathagata. The Tathagata has established the way leading to the cessation of the world. In the world, with its devas, its maras, its brahmas, its ascetics and brahmins, its devas and humans, whatever bhikkhus can be seen, heard, sensed, cognized, or reached, sought out, and encompassed by the mind has been discovered by the Tathagata. This bold statement about the Buddha's knowledge of the world echoes the formula he uses when he declares the Four Noble Truths, the most fundamental statement of his teaching for the world, in which he sets out the most, in the most basic terms the purpose of his quest to find an end to dukkha, or suffering. Here he substitutes the word loka, or world, for the more familiar word dukkha. He then goes on to claim full and complete familiarity with the world, its origin, its cessation, and the means to its cessation. The Buddha spoke about the world often and in diverse situations. In fact, in the Buddha Vandana, the homage to the Buddha, which is traditionally chanted in the morning at meditation courses and in monasteries and temples everywhere, one of the several epithets of the Buddha that is mentioned is that he is loka vidu, that is, that he is one who knows the, knows the universe. And yet, having declared that he possesses such complete knowledge of the world, he also states in another place that he does not reveal all he knows. The Blessed One was once living at Kosambi in a forest of singsapa trees. He picked up a few leaves in his hand and he asked the bhikkhus, What do you think, bhikkhus? Which is greater? The few leaves that I hold in my hand or those on the trees in this forest? They respond, The leaves that the Blessed One has in his hand are few, Bhante. Those in the forest are far more numerous. So too, bhikkhus, the things that I have known by direct knowledge are far more. The things that I have told you are only a few. Why haven't I told them? Because they bring no benefit, no advancement in the holy life, because they do not lead to dispassion, to fading, to ceasing, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. And what have I told you? This is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. He makes it abundantly clear that his interest is in bringing benefit to the world, in advancement in the holy life, rather than in merely exploring the mechanics of the universe. 
Now, contained in these statements are several important elements of the Buddha's worldview. In attempting to compare the Buddha's knowledge of the universe and the collective knowledge of modern science, let us notice, first of all, that the Buddha uses no instruments to investigate the world. He performs only internal experiential experiments and has discovered whatever can be seen, heard, sensed, cognized, or reached, sought out, and encompassed by the mind. His method, as we see, is radically empirical. It is discovery by direct experience and direct knowledge. We must also note here that the world he describes is multi-layered, containing devas, brahmas, maras, many other beings besides humans and animals. The worldview of the Buddha and his followers down through the centuries includes 31 planes of existence, also referred to as lokas. I won't spend too much time on all the features of this complex cosmology, but the outline of it is important because, as we shall see, the multi-layered aspect of the universe is directly related to the Buddha's formulation of evolution. As individual beings evolve and move among the various lokas, so the universe organizes itself into these planes of existence. The moral and psychological laws of nature interweave with this system of realms in an incontrovertible fashion that becomes the very mechanics of the universal creation. As described by the Buddha, this multi-layered cosmos is divided into three broad groups, the realm of sense desire, the fine material realm, and the immaterial realm. The sense desire realm, or the kama loka, so-called because sensual desire prevails there, is made up of 11 planes. Ranging in ascending order, there are the four undesirable destinations made up of various hells, the titans or the asura, who are individuals involved in continual conflict and combat, the hungry ghosts or the peta, who are afflicted by constant unfulfilled craving, and the animal plane. The desirable destinations, the remaining ones within those 11, include the human plane and six heavenly planes of devas. Above or higher than the kamaloka is the fine material realm, the rupaloka, so-called because the grosser forms of matter are no longer present in these planes. The rupaloka consists of 16 planes inhabited by brahmas, the worlds of these beings correspond to the attainments of the first four jhanas, or the levels of absorption samadhi. The final four planes comprise the immaterial realm, the arupaloka. These are planes without physical form at all, in which the beings, known as arupa brahmas, have only mental activity and dwell in the deep peace of the fifth to the eighth jhanas. Now, beings are born into one or another of these realms based on their accumulated actions from the past, or their kama, which is better known in the West by its Sanskrit equivalent of karma. Kama means literally action, and the Buddha defines it as volition, or chetana. The universe described here is one based on complete conditionality of action, laws of cause and effect that cannot be transgressed. In a succinct definition of the conditional nature of all phenomena, the Buddha said, that comes to be when there's this, that arises with the arising of this, that does not come to be when there is not this, that ceases with the cessation of this. In this statement of the abstract principle of dependent origination, the Buddha approaches the purity of definition of Newton's third law of motion, which is for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. The Buddha would say, rather, for every action there is an equal and appropriate result. In his formulation of this highly structured and complex cosmology, the Buddha goes beyond the universe that is observable by the five physical senses. The classical scientific worldview of the 18th and 19th centuries was limited to the observable universe, 
But we've seen developments in scientific theory in the latter half of the 20th century that so far clearly transcend anything that can be tested or observed within the physical universe. In the latest attempts to unify the, general, the theory of general relativity and the quantum theory, scientists and mathematicians have proposed a new paradigm called string theory. As they are working out the implications of this new theory, they find that it is necessary to assume that at least 10 dimensions must exist in the universe. These include the three dimensions of uh, conventional physical space that we all inhabit. Time is a fourth dimension. And then six other dimensions that are not visible. As we've seen, science is always refining its understanding of the universe. Perhaps as time goes on and string theory or whatever replaces it is refined, they may discover that more unseen dimensions are available. In the Pali literature, each of these realms or lokas, whether visible or invisible, is understood to be an objective plane of existence, which is a counterpart of some action, whether physical or mental, of the beings who inhabit them. These planes are taken to be destinations for successive births of beings. Each birth is based on the actions or kama accumulated in previous lives. In some planes, these lives are said to be extremely long-lasting. There is a noteworthy feature of the Buddha's characterization of the cosmology, namely that while he used aspects of the pre-Buddhist Vedic cosmology commonly accepted in his time, he did not adopt it wholesale. He altered it to suit the reality that he had experienced. The most important and radical alteration he made was that he denied that birth in any of these realms was eternal. Every being, no matter how long-lasting its life might be in the higher realms, was subject to impermanence, decay, and ultimately death. This fundamental characteristic of all levels of the universe, that all experience and phenomena are dynamic and subject to change, is, along with an understanding of the incontrovertible law of cause and effect, the most important feature of his formulation of the universe. In a famous verse from the Sangyutta Nikaya, the Buddha declares, Sabbo adipito loko, sabbo loko padupito, sabbo pajalito loko, sabbo loko pakampito, pakampito. I just like saying that. <laughs> it means the entire world is burning. The entire world is going up in smoke. The entire world is combustion. The entire world is vibration. The description of burning that we find here is on the one hand a metaphor referring to the dukkha nature of the world, its suffering, its fundamentally uncomfortable, dissatisfactory nature. On the other hand, it is an accurate description of the absolute nature of impermanence, the constant tendency to decay and disorder that we always encounter. It is this same characteristic of all phenomena that is described in the second law of thermodynamics as entropy. Entropy is a concept that we all take for granted but never really understand very exactly. It's defined as energy in a closed system that is unavailable to do work. It is energy, but too diffuse and too random to harness productively. The Buddha is describing the same law here as a process of ubiquitous combustion and vibration in the loka. But he is taking this observation a step further by relating it to the human experience of dissatisfaction, or dukkha. This basic characteristic of radical impermanence, or anicca, throughout the world is in fact the linchpin that joins the Buddha's basic statement of the Four Noble Truths and his statement above that he has discovered the world, the origin of the world, the cessation, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. The fact that the world is anicca and can be experienced as such 
leads to the undeniable conclusion that nothing in the world is constant, controllable, or productive of lasting pleasure and happiness. Because all is pajalito, combustion, and pakampito, vibration, all is therefore dukkha, suffering. This perpetual, unremitting impermanence is described in the Pali literature at both the microcosmic and the macrocosmic scale. Long before Lavoisier and John Dalton formulated and quantified the atomic theory of matter in Europe at the turn of the 19th century, the Pali literature had quantified the smallest particle of matter. In the Vibhanga Atakata, a commentary on the Abhidhamma, which is ascribed to Venerable Buddha Gosa and therefore dating to the 5th century of the Christian era, the Paramanu, or the smallest atom, was defined as a size that works out to 1 over 581,147,136th part of an angula, or a finger's width. <laughs> now, fingers vary in width, admittedly. <laughs> but by measuring my own and finding that they average just less than 2 centimeters across, I calculate the size of the Paramanu was on the order of 3.44 times 10 to the minus 10th meters. Actually, I had to call on some friends who could do that math for me. <laughs> this figure corresponds to about one-third of an angstrom, the unit of measure that was created in the 20th century to express the size of atoms. Now, atoms are known to be notoriously difficult to measure accurately because it isn't possible to determine the location of the electrons which surround the nucleus. However, estimates of their radii, which is the way their size is usually specified, range from about 0.7 angstrom to 2.9 angstroms. So it seems that, given the problems of the measurement of atoms and without a really accurate estimate of an angula, <laughs> we can conclude that the 5th century assessment of the size of the Paramanu is at least on the same order of magnitude as the 20th century assessment of the size of the atom. But this wasn't the smallest particle of matter spoken of in the polytexts. There is reference to a subatomic particle called a kalapa, which Dr. LeMay Henderson introduced us to yesterday, or it's called the atakalapa sometimes, which means basically a group or a group of eight. Now, it seems counterintuitive at first that this, that a particle would be called a group until we recognize that the name refers to the smallest unit of eight qualities grouped together, which is constantly in flux, oscillating in and out of existence at an extremely rapid frequency. As quantum theory also tells us, matter is not substantial. Rather, it exhibits, exhibits a dual nature of both waves and particles, with one aspect predominating in some situations and the other predominating in other situations, but characterized by extremely rapid fluctuation between the two. Those who have listened to S. Nguenka's discourses from the 10-day course will have heard the story he tells of Professor Louis W. Alvarez in his Nobel Prize-winning work with the bubble chamber, which essentially established the rate of fluctuation of high-energy subatomic particles at the rate of 10 to the 22nd times per second. Gwenkaji compares this to the period of oscillation of the Kalapa, and he quotes his teacher, Sayaji Ubakin, who wrote, the, life, the lifespan of a Kalapa is termed a moment, and trillions of such moments are said to elapse during the wink of an eye. In a different place, speaking of the Buddha's enlightenment, Ubakin also wrote, It came vividly to him that there is no substantiality in the human body and that it is nothing but the sum total of innumerable millions of kalapas, each about one forty-six thousand six hundred fifty-sixth part of a particle of dust from the wheel of a chariot in summer. <laughs> now, I haven't been able to discover exactly which text Sayajuba Ken is quoting in these passages. <laughs> but we can be sure that it is from the later commentarial literature, just as the quantification of the size of the Paramanu was. 
The Buddha himself, in keeping with his determination to speak only of those things that lead to the direct benefit of his listeners, to advancement on the path to liberation, is not quoted in the Tipitaka on these exact points, the size of the Kalapa and the frequency of its arising and passing away. It was left to those later editors and redactors of his work to elaborate on such points. But given the variations of the speed of eye blinking and the relative size of tiny particles of dust, there can be no doubt that his method of discovery, even though it was very different from the scientific method, arrived at the same essential characteristics of the physical universe as has chemistry and physics in more recent times. The infinitesimal scale that is revealed by each system is basically consistent as regards both space and time. The polytexts elaborate on the nature of the world at the macrocosmic end of the scale also. In the Aganya Sutta of the Diganikaya, the Buddha speaks of the evolution of the world and of society. Now there comes a time, Vaseta, when after a long period of time, this world contracts. When the world contracts, beings are for the most, most part born in the Abhisara Brahmaloka, or the plane of radiance. There they dwell made of mind, feeding on joy, self-luminous, moving through the air, glorious. Thus they remain for a very long time. But there comes a time, Vaseta, when after a long period of time, this world begins to expand again. When the world expands, beings for the most part fall from the Abhisara Brahmaloka, and are born in this world, and they dwell here, made of mind, feeding on joy, self-luminous, moving through the air, constantly beautiful. Thus they remain for a very long time. This passage and the paragraphs that follow it throughout the Aganya Sutta are actually a rather rare instance where the Buddha departs from his off-stated policy of not revealing the details of the beginning and the end of the world. In this discourse, we see explicitly stated the formulation of vast space and time that is implicit throughout his teaching, though seldom laid out in detail. He lived in the Ganges Basin in the 5th century BC in a time and place that was rich with cosmological speculation. It appears from many passages throughout the Tipitaka that all of the religious teachers of the day drew free, freely on this free-floating, evolving mass of cosmological ideas and vigorously debated and disputed them among themselves and their followers. As I indicated earlier, the Buddha adopted these and used them as necessary to explain his ideas to his listeners. In this discourse as a whole, he is describing the evolution of beings according to their actions, by means of this description of the world and its long-range evolution, he makes clear that the actions of each being, no matter what his station in the cosmos as a whole, leads to birth in the various planes of existence. For every action in the world on any plane, there is an equivalent effect, just as we saw earlier, which manifests in the world conditioned by the law of Kama. Just as the physical world, as science describes it, is based on unchanging laws of cause and effect, so is the Buddhist worldview. The difference is that unlike the scientific paradigm where there is a discontinuity between the physical laws of the world and the ethical laws governing beings, in the Buddha's teaching there is a smooth, consistent continuity of cause and effect in all realms, physical and moral, large and small, human and non-human. The Darwinian theory of evolution that has come to be, accept, to be the accepted explanation for the variability of life on our planet posits that random genetic variation is sorted out into a selection of species based on their fitness to survive in the various niches of their environments. The Buddha also viewed the life of the world as dynamic, evolving, and subject to rigorous laws of selection. But the selection was based on the moral law of Kama, rather than the law of mere survival. In his, view of this moral evolutionary in his view of this moral evolutionary principle was not limited to this planet or even to the visible physical world. 
It extended to all the planes of existence and included the entire universe. In the later commentarial literature that was collected in the centuries after the Buddha, a detailed explication was given of vast spaces and enormous periods of time in which the comic actions of beings play themselves out. The commentaries often speak of the vastness of the world, describing our own world as simply a part of a chakavala, or wheel cycle, and alluding to tens of thousands of such chakavalas in the universe. Does this term chakavala refer to a solar system as we understand it today, or to a galaxy? The literature is not clear on this point. And the differences in scale between solar systems and galaxies is so great that no speculative calculation can be made as to the extent of space that was under consideration in the literature. Suffice it to say that the traditional follower of the Buddhist path would understand that space is vast and teeming with other world systems. The period of expansion and contraction of a loka, as described above, was known as a kappa, or an era. This period itself would be of very long duration by human standards. But the literature tells us that while the future Buddha, who eventually took birth in, the, in historical times as Gotama, was preparing himself through innumerable rounds of birth to become a Buddha, the amount of time that is said to have elapsed was four asankayas and a hundred thousand kappas. If one kappa itself is a long period of time, the unit of time designated by an asankaya, which means incalculable, was truly enormous. <clears throat> it is defined as consisting of one to the 140th kappas. With this kind of cosmic space and time as a common backdrop for all the cultures that have followed the Buddha's teaching, is it any wonder that no surprise, concern, or backlash arose among them when astronomers began estimating time scales of tens of billions of years since the Big Bang, when scientists found the size of the visible universe to be billions of light years in scale and expanding all the time, again, it was no surprise to anyone who knew the scale of the universe described by the Buddhist, cos Buddhist cosmology. I know just in my lifetime, I've heard at least a half a dozen reformulations of whether or not the universe as science knows it is going to continue expanding or reach a steady state or begin collapsing on itself again. And they keep building bigger and bigger telescopes to try to search for the dark matter of the universe and recalculating the rate of expansion. I suggest that these astronomers might want to consider the evidence of the polycanon before they flip-flop on this question once again. So we see that in terms of the scale and mechanics of the physical universe, from the tiniest invisible particle to the great expanses of space-time at the opposite end of the scale, science has yet to posit a paradigm that has been a surprise for the follower of the Buddha. The immutable laws of cause and effect are entirely in line with the Buddhist worldview, as is the theory of evolution. But we must keep in mind that in the Buddha's teaching, his purpose was not to completely describe the world or to create a metaphysical system. In a well-known discourse, a certain deva named Rohitasa comes to the Buddha and asks him about finding the end of the loka by physically traveling there. He asks the Buddha, Lord, the world's end, where one, is, one, where one neither is born, nor ages, nor dies, nor passes away, nor reappears. Is it possible to know or see or reach that by traveling there? The Buddha answers, Friend, that there is a world's end, where one neither is born, nor ages, nor dies, nor passes away, nor reappears, which is to be known or seen or reached by traveling there, that I do not say. Yet I also do not say that there is an end of suffering without reaching the world's end. Rather, it is in this fathom-long body, with its perceptions and its mind, that I describe the world, the origin of the world, 
the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. To research this paper, I used the Chattasangayana Tipitaka CD from the Vipassana Research Institute to search for this word loka, which is here translated as world. I found that in the root texts of the Pali Canon, exclusive of the massive commentarial literature, this word loka occurs in its various forms more than 8,000 times. If you include the many compound terms in which loka appears, it adds several thousand more occurrences. But very few of these appearances of the term actually refer to the world in the external, merely objective sense that scientific objectivity would require. By far, the majority of these usages are in the sense that the Buddha has described to Rohitasa here. The loka, for him, is really this world of mind and matter contained with each individual's body. As we have seen, the Buddha was not concerned, as a scientist is, with merely discovering the laws of nature. Instead, he teaches Dhamma, which is based on a thorough understanding of the laws of nature and is concomitantly concerned with helping people understand how to live in line with those laws. Since the law of Kama, cause and effect, is the operative force throughout the dynamic universe, as the Buddha experiences it, he is more concerned to transform the world by teaching beings how to reform their own actions of mind, speech, and body. Therefore, his formulation of the universe while acknowledging that he has discovered the world, its origin and its cessation, focuses mostly on the way leading to the cessation of the world, the Noble Eightfold Path, which is to be practiced within the framework of this fathom-long body with its perceptions and its mind. All of the features of the universe, of the loka, that we have touched upon so far can be known within this human-scale world and none more so than the most fundamental characteristic of a Nietzsche, impermanence, change, the dynamic energy of the world within. When a sincere individual comes into experiential contact with this characteristic directly within oneself, then he or she has experienced the energy of the loka, the diffuse energy, entropy, that could perform no useful work beforehand becomes the very medium of transformation of the individual, who thereby becomes an incremental node of reform of the world as a whole. Anicca has to be experienced to bring about any change. Intellectual understanding is useful only to the extent that it inspires one to practice, to seek experience. You may remember that earlier I posed the question, if the old myths no longer provide an adequate rationale for ethical behavior, then what does? Does the scientific worldview provide us with an alternative? Let's return to that question and see if we can address it first from the viewpoint of science. <clears throat> I'd like to quote from Albert Einstein, that most eminently quotable scientist. He worried about the moral undermining that he saw was happening as a result of the growing ascendancy of science rather than religious explanations of the origin, nature, and destiny of the world. Concerning this, he said, The further the spiritual evolution of mankind advances, the more certain it seems to me that the path to genuine religiosity does not lie through the fear of life and the fear of death and blind faith, but through striving after rational knowledge. A man's ethical behavior should be based effectually on sympathy, education, and social ties. No religious basis is necessary. Man would indeed be in a poor way if he had to be restrained by fear of punishment and hope of reward after death. Now, Einstein was a real optimist when it came to his ideas about reforming human nature. There's a famous exchange of letters between himself and Sigmund Freud, conducted in 1932, 
addressing the topic, Is there any way of delivering mankind from the menace of war? The correspondence between these two esteemed figures, which was sponsored by the League of Nations, was published as a small booklet entitled Why War? A Correspondence Between Albert Einstein and Sigmund Freud. Einstein felt that through education, the spread of knowledge, and the establishment of transnational political organizations, such as the League of Nations, mankind could learn to leave aside the hatred, the greed, and the ignorance that leads to war. He posed the question to Freud, Is it possible to control man's mental evolution so as to make him proof against the psychoses of hate and destructiveness? Freud, however, was not as hopeful as Einstein on the possibility of man's ability to overcome his baser tendencies. He wrote, The ideal conditions would obviously be found in a community where every man subordinated his instinctive life to the dictates of reason. Nothing less than this could bring about so thorough thorough and so durable a union between men. But surely, such a hope is utterly utopian as things are. In the end, he concluded, there is no likelihood of our being able to suppress humanity's aggressive tendencies. Time, alas, has shown that Dr. Freud's view is all too true. The League of Nations, on which Einstein placed so much hope, has arisen and passed away. The rise of Nazism, the subsequent Holocaust, and the devastation brought about by the Second World War reduced Einstein's optimism to his later fears about the future of mankind. Surveying the material results of his own theoretical work on the nature of the atom after the war, Einstein said, It has become appallingly clear that our technology has surpassed our humanity. Toward the end of his life, Einstein's view of humanity and his concern for reforming it had reached a more mature stage. He was realistic while still hopeful. He wrote, A human being is part of a whole called by us the universe, a part limited in time and space, He experiences himself, his thoughts, and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circles of compassion, to embrace all living creatures, and the whole of nature in its beauty. This is a statement that I believe the Buddha could agree with. The problem is that Einstein does not tell us how to succeed at that task. Neither he, nor Freud, nor any of the myriad scientists who have used the scientific method to achieve phenomenal results in the physical realm have found a practical method to produce freedom from the prison of our delusions, our personal desires and aversions. For this, we must delve deeper than the rational mind is capable of. Though science may be the accepted source today for our modern creation myth, though the scientific method of inquiry provides us with the credible evidence of how the universe came to be and predicts what the ultimate end may be, it is at a loss to provide us with a method for maintaining peace and harmony while the universe exists here and now. It is most successful when exploring the extreme ends of the space-time continuum and when converting that theoretical knowledge into the technologies that have so greatly enhanced our material existence. It fails us most of all at the scale and in the realm in which the Buddha was most concerned. The teaching of the Buddha is empirically based and compatible with the scientific worldview. And it is focused on exactly this moral and spiritual reform of mankind that science has been unable to effect. The practice of Dhamma is the perfect completion to the scientific method. What is it exactly that we seek 
when we say we want peace. Peace conjures up scenes of people living lives where they can grow their crops and raise their families without interruption. The very word is synonymous with stability, constancy, immutability. The essence of peace at the mundane level is opposed to change. But all the laws of nature clearly indicate that the universe is always dynamic, changing, evolving at all scales of experience. Whether derived by the scientific method or by direct experience of mind and matter in the framework of the body, the laws of cause and effect cannot be revoked within the limits of the universe. However, both Einstein and the Buddha tell us that there is a situation in which change is stilled. One of the more incomprehensible results of solving the formulas for the general theory of relativity is that if it were possible to travel at the speed of light, time would not advance. It is assumed that it is physically impossible to reach that ultimate speed, but theory Now, perhaps I'm way out of my depth in comparing the apparent similarity of these two disparate statements. As I said earlier, my disclaimer is I am not scientifically trained. (laughs) Perhaps I've gone too far in my speculation about the parallels between science and the Dhamma. I have no experience of the speed of light, nor of Nibbana. But I am intrigued by the fact that one must resort to statements about what does not happen in the situations at the extremes of each system. A scientist will tell us that it is not possible to attain the state of light speed in order to test whether really there is an ultimate peace prevailing. But the Buddha asserts that he has experienced it, not by physically traveling, but by mental experience. And he asserts that anyone can reach this experience by diligent practice of the Dhamma. Real peace on this human plane could only come if and when each human being has experienced the subtle but perceptible in Nietzsche within, has realized the true nature of craving and aversion within us all, and has transcended the ignorance, the delusion, the illusion in which we are imprisoned at birth. Peace on earth must begin with peace in the heart of every one of us. And this personal transformation is within the reach of any sincere practitioner who follows the simple and precise formula laid out by the Buddha. Invoking the sentiments of both Einstein and the Buddha, my wish is that all beings may come in contact with such a possibility. May all beings take the opportunity to understand the deeper nature of reality experientially. May all beings widen the circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of the universe in its beauty and its comically ordered justice. Thank you very much.